Thank you. Pray with me today as we come to consider God's Word to us. Our God and our Father, as always, we acknowledge that as we come to Your Word, we are coming to Your Word. We are coming to that which was breathed out by Your Holy Spirit. We affirm, Father, this morning that it wasn't the people who wrote the Word who were just inspired, that it was the words themselves that were inspired, that were breathed out. So that what they wrote were the words, Father, that you sovereignly ordained for us to have. And therefore, they are your words. They are inerrant. They are infallible. They are full of life and full of power. They are living. They are active. They are like that double-edged sword that penetrates to the deepest recesses of our souls and exposes everything, Father, that needs to be exposed. And we pray that your word by your Holy Spirit would wield its power in us today. Father, help us to see Jesus Christ in all of the fullness of His glory as our great Redeemer and King, and help our lives to be constrained to worship Him and adore Him and submit to Him and serve Him, no matter what the cost. So, Father, may the words of my mouth, may the meditations of our hearts today be pleasing in Your sight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I think it is a manifestation of God's good providence that in our study of the book of Acts that we've been in for many, many months now, we've come to these verses today on this particular Sunday. Last week, as you remember, we were focused in the end of Acts chapter 19 on the great riot that broke out in the city of Ephesus in response to Paul's ministry of the word and the gospel of Jesus Christ there in Ephesus. Well, here now, in verse 1 of Acts chapter 20, Luke records that after that big uproar in Ephesus died down and ceased, that Paul sent for his disciples and that he encouraged them and then departed. After that three-year-long season of ministry there in Ephesus, he, he departed for Macedonia. And then in verses 2 through 6, Luke records for us a number of details about Paul's travels. He spent three months in Greece. While he was there, another plot arose against him, like it did almost everywhere that he went, by the unbelieving Jews who opposed the gospel. They were trying to squelch it. They were trying to thwart it. And so Paul changed his travel plans some. Then Luke tells us the names of Paul's traveling companions in verse 4. When they got to Philippi in Macedonia, he says that the companions went on ahead of Paul in verse 5 in order to wait for him at Troas while Paul remained, presumably with Luke, because Luke who wrote this whole thing says, we sailed away from Philippi, so he's there with Paul in verse 6. And here's the detail that I want for us to focus on together this morning. In verse 6, Luke tells us, that he and Paul waited to set sail from Philippi and to go to Troas to join the rest of their companions. They waited until after the days of unleavened bread. And there's God's providence in terms of timing, because this coming week, of course, is Passion Week, or Holy Week, where we remember and celebrate 
that final week of Jesus' life before His crucifixion on Good Friday and His resurrection from the grave on the following Sunday. And we know, we understand from the testimonies of the writers of the Gospels who recorded all of those events of that week of Jesus' life, that all of those things took place during the time leading up to the Passover festival in Jerusalem. That's the time that Jesus had chosen. He deliberately and specifically came to Jerusalem for the Passover during that particular time, knowing and purposing that He would be killed, crucified on the cross, on Friday, on the day of the Passover. Well, here in Acts 20 and verse 6, Luke tells us that he and Paul were in Philippi before setting sail for Troas during the days of unleavened bread. And what we're going to see and learn together today is that the days of unleavened bread means specifically the days that followed the Passover. Because the Passover meal itself featured for very good reason that we'll understand today, it featured the eating of unleavened bread. And then for seven more days, that's all they could eat in terms of bread. They couldn't eat any leavened bread, only unleavened bread. And so that whole period of time, including the Passover and following for a week, was called the Days of Unleavened Bread. Unleavened bread, kind of like the the kind, exactly actually, like the kind that we're going to eat today, during communion, the Lord's Supper, which of course was instituted by Jesus for all of His disciples to observe and to remember until He comes again, until He returns. It was instituted by Jesus at the Last Supper, which He ate in the upper room with His disciples on the night before the crucifixion, the night before He died. And that meal... That last supper that they ate together as they reclined around that table in the upper room, that was the Passover meal. And the bread that he took and broke during that meal and said, this is my body which is for you, that was unleavened bread. And so Luke tells us here in the opening verses of Acts 20 that while Paul's traveling companions went on ahead to Troas... Paul and Luke stayed back in Philippi in order to be present in Philippi during the Passover, during the days of unleavened bread before setting sail themselves. And the question is, why? Paul's a Christian now. Why does Paul, now that he's a Christian, continue, even during his travels, to observe the Jewish Passover and the days of unleavened bread? now that he's a follower and an apostle of Jesus Christ. So since in God's providence we've come to this passage at this time, this same time when we observe and celebrate the events that led up to Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection on that week, which happened during the days of unleavened bread, we're going to spend our time this morning thinking about the significance of those things and answering those questions. So the Passover is one of the main festivals that is celebrated every year annually by the Jewish people. They celebrated it all throughout the Old Testament. And and at the time that Jesus lived, 
Because God commanded them to. It wasn't just a tradition. It was instituted and commanded by God specifically to celebrate the Passover. In the book of Exodus, in the book of Deuteronomy, again in the book of Leviticus, God commanded His people to always celebrate the Passover. Leviticus chapter 23, He says, These are the appointed feasts of the Lord, the holy convocations which you shall proclaim at the time that is appointed for them. In the first month, specifically, on the 14th day of the month, specifically, at twilight, very specifically, is the Lord's Passover. And on the 15th day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread to the Lord. For seven days you shall eat only unleavened bread. That's Leviticus chapter 23, verses 4 through 6. Now on the Jewish calendar... The first month, our first month on our calendar is called January. On their calendar, the first month is called the month of Nisan. And so the 14th day of Nisan, every single year at twilight, when the sun is starting to go down and it's it's past the horizon, that began the Jewish Passover, where a specific meal was eaten, and that meal included unleavened bread. That was the meal Jesus shared with His disciples. On Friday, the 14th of Nisan, the night before He died. And it was to be followed by the Feast of Unleavened Bread where the people of Israel ate unleavened bread for seven consecutive days. And all of that, the annual Passover, the seven-day Feast of Unleavened Bread, all of that were, uh, they, it was all observed in, in memory of, in commemoration of the great event in Old Testament history of the exodus of the people of Israel from their long captivity in Egypt. So, think back with me really quick. Let's do a, a, a running fast flyover of the history of it all in order to get a sense of what was going on in the Old Testament that gave definition to this Passover feast that was so important all throughout the Old Testament and especially important for the coming of Jesus Christ. Flyover history. The the child that God had promised to Abraham and Sarah was Isaac. And Isaac's son Jacob, in spite of his treachery, deceit, dishonesty, secured the birthright from his father. And Jacob wrestled one night with God. And so his name was changed to Israel. And Israel had 12 sons. And he favored the youngest of them, Joseph, whom he gave a multicolored tunic to. And Joseph's older brothers were jealous of him. And so they sold him into slavery. And then Joseph ended up in Egypt. And in Egypt, by the absolutely amazing providence of God, Joseph ended up being elevated to the right hand of the Pharaoh as his most trusted governor and official. And years later, his 11 brothers traveled down to Egypt because there was a famine up in their land and they needed to buy grain for food. 
and they had no idea that Joseph was even still alive, let alone that he had ended up in Egypt, let alone that he had been placed in charge of all of the affairs of Egypt. But Joseph knew. As soon as he saw them coming, he knew who they were, and he had mercy on them, and he forgave them, and he said to them, when they recognized finally who he was and he told them, and they wept bitterly over their sin against him, he said to them, what you intended for evil, God meant for good, that I might be able to be the one to help you now and spare your lives and give you grain. And so it ended up that the brothers and their families all ended up moving down to Egypt with Joseph's blessing and the Pharaoh's blessing, and they began to multiply and thrive in the land of Goshen at the, at the Nile Delta region there in the northern part of Egypt. But the beginning of the book of Exodus tells us, after some time, a new Pharaoh arose to power in Egypt who knew not Joseph, that means he didn't have any regard for Joseph or his memory or his great heritage like the previous Pharaoh had. And so the new Pharaoh started to get concerned that all of these descendants of Israel, all these Hebrew people, were becoming so many in Egypt. There's too many of them, he said, and they're too strong for us. So he was worried, the Pharaoh was, that all these Hebrews could end up wielding too much power and influence in Egypt, and so he subjugated them. He subjected them to harsh labor, and that ended up being their situation for the next 400 years. Exodus chapter 1 and verse 12 says that the more the Egyptians oppressed the Hebrews, the more the Hebrews multiplied and spread abroad by God's providence. And so the Egyptians kept cracking the whip harder and treating them even more harshly and making their lives even more bitter, it says, with hard labor. And Pharaoh commanded the the Hebrew midwives, two ladies who would help the Hebrew mothers give birth to their babies, he commanded the midwives and said, if the baby comes out a boy, kill it. If it's a girl, you can let him live, but if it's a baby boy, kill it in order to shrink the population and stop its growth. But the midwives feared God, and they didn't do what Pharaoh had told them to do, and they let the baby boys live. And so, Exodus chapter 2, a fine young baby boy was born, and his mother was a Levite woman a descendant of of Levi. And she hid him for three months until she could hide him no more because we know that at some point babies start making more noise. And so she didn't want the Egyptians to hear this baby and come looking for him and kill him. And so when she couldn't hide him in her house any longer, she placed him in a waterproof basket and set that basket in the Nile River among the reeds by the bank. And her daughter, the, the baby's sister watched from a distance to see what happened. And what happened was that the daughter of the Pharaoh came down to the Nile River to bathe right at that spot by God's providence. 
and found the basket and opened it and saw the baby. And where human expectation might say, the baby's in trouble, her heart fell in love with that little baby and she had mercy upon him because he was a beautiful little boy. So she took him back to the mother and let the mother nurse him. And then the daughter of Pharaoh adopted that baby and raised him as her own son in the courts of Pharaoh in Egypt. And she named him Moses, which comes from a Hebrew word that means to draw something out because she had drawn him up out of the water in that basket. So she raised him up there in the palace in Egypt. She gave him the the best education. She probably was grooming Moses to eventually become a pharaoh himself. But God had other plans for Moses. One day, Moses, who knew he was a Hebrew, who understand his, his heritage, saw one of the Egyptian taskmasters beating one of the Hebrew slaves. And Moses ended up killing that taskmaster and burying him in the sand and then fearing that he had been caught, fearing that he would get discovered and, and found out for what he had done and for what he was as a Hebrew and, and killed for it, Moses fled into the wilderness and God met him there, right? At the burning bush and commissioned Moses to go back to Egypt and confront the Pharaoh, and demand that the people of Israel be set free and allowed to leave Egypt and move to the land that God had promised for them. And you know that story. Ten plagues were poured out by God through Moses on the Egyptians. Each one of those plagues was very specifically designed to confront one of the Egyptians' false gods. They believed in a pantheon of false gods. Gods of the river, gods of the sun, gods of the harvest, and so on and so forth. God confronted them all in order to show them to be false, non-existent, powerless gods. Your gods can't prevent the Nile from turning to blood. Or the sun from being blackened out. In order to show Himself to be the one true almighty God of this universe in order to command see Pharaoh's submission to him. But Pharaoh would not submit because his heart was rock hard towards God. And it only got harder and harder and harder with every plague that God poured out. And then in Exodus chapter 11, God ordained one more plague. He said to Moses, yet one plague more will I bring upon Pharaoh and upon all Egypt. And after that one, he will let you go from here. And when he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Get out now, he will say. And then God told Moses, here's what's going to happen. At midnight, I will go out in the midst of Egypt And every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, even all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be such a cry throughout all the land of Egypt as there has never been before, nor will ever be again. Now, Turn with me to Exodus chapter 12, where we learn about the Passover. Exodus chapter 12, follow along. I'm going to read from verse 1 all the way down to verse 13. 
bearing in mind this last plague that God is going to pour out and the result that it's going to have of Pharaoh finally proclaiming that the Hebrews can go. Verse 1, Exodus 12. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month that this is happening on, this month shall be for you the beginning of months, the first month. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each of you can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. And then they shall take some of the blood from those lambs and put it on the two doorposts, the the vertical supports around the door, and the lintel, the horizontal support, of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night roasted on the fire with unleavened bread, and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head and its legs and its inner parts, And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains in the morning, you shall burn. And in this manner you shall eat it. With your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night. And I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments, for I am the Lord. Now the blood that's painted on the doorposts and the lintels shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So this was how the Lord poured out judgment on Egypt and mercy on his people. He himself, in all of the fullness of his wrath and judgment, would come sweeping through Egypt to destroy the lives of every firstborn son there in the entire land, including in the house of Pharaoh. But anyone whose house was painted with the blood of the spotless lamb would be passed over, protected, delivered from death and the wrath of God. And notice that God told Moses to mark this month and day so that it could be remembered for future generations. This month shall be for you the beginning of months. When he brought them out of Egypt and made them a nation, he gave them a whole new calendar. And he said, this month that this Passover happens on is going to be the first month on your new calendar. 
And so in verse 14 says, This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout the generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. And then verse 15 specifies, Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. And so you see where this festival comes from that Paul was attending in Philippi, that the disciples were a part of, that was going on in Jerusalem when Jesus died and when he was raised. Look at verse 15. God specifies this. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened, From the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold of of the feast, you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days. But what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt." And therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month, from the 14th of the month at the evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at the evening. So, put it all together. On the 14th day of the first month, the the month called Nisan, on the 14th day of Nisan, the Jews would, from this point forward, observe this memorial feast to commemorate the Lord's Passover that happened on that day in Egypt. The Hebrew word for Passover is Pasach, when he passed over those houses in Egypt that were covered by the blood of the Paschal lambs. They would eat the meat that he prescribed there, Roasted lamb, bitter herbs, unleavened bread, and then for seven days, starting on the 14th of Nisan and going till the 21st, they would eat unleavened bread. That's what Luke's talking about in in Acts 20 and verse 6 when he says that he and Paul stayed in Philippi during the days of unleavened bread. They'd been there for Passover. They'd stayed for the following seven days before setting sail to Troas. And it was at that same time, about 24 years earlier, on the 14th of Nisan until the 21st, that Jesus Christ came into Jerusalem for the last time. And on the 14th day of Nisan, which was Friday that year, Jesus and his disciples gathered in the upper room in the evening, which was, according to the way that they reckoned days, the Judean manner of reckoning days, that they, they reckoned days differently than we do, What we do is when the sun starts to come up, we say that's the beginning of a new day. What they did was when the sun went down at twilight, that was the beginning of the day. So the sun had gone down on the 14th of Nisan. Now it's the 14th. Now it's Friday. They gather in the upper room and they eat the Passover meal together. And then after daybreak, sun's coming back up. It's still the 14th of Nisan. It's still Friday. That's when Jesus was crucified. And on the third day, Sunday, during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, Jesus rose triumphantly from the grave. 
So what I want you to notice here is that God is very specific that the bread that is eaten during the Passover meal and for the consecutive days after that meal must be unleavened bread. That means no yeast in the bread to make it rise. Why? There's three main reasons. The first one is hinted at in verse 11 here of Exodus chapter 12, where God specified the manner in which they were to eat this meal. You remember? In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. Don't lounge around and have a leisurely dinner. Stuff it down with your shoes on. This is the Lord's Passover. So what's the deal? The deal is they needed to be ready to go. See? First thing. Because that night, God would come at midnight, pass through all of Egypt, killing all the firstborn sons, except for those who had the blood painted on the door. And that's exactly what happened down in verse 29. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock even. And Pharaoh rose up in the night. He didn't wait for the sun to come up. And he and all his servants and all of the Egyptians and there was a great cry in Egypt for there was not a house where someone was not dead. And so verse 31, in the middle of the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord, as you have said. He's not submitting to God here, by the way. He's still rock hard towards God, but he just wants these people gone. They've cost him too much. Take your flocks, take your herds, and be gone. And bless me also, he says. Tell your God to ease up. So see, the people, when they were eating this meal, had to be ready to go. Because in the middle of the night, they were going to go. And so they ate their, their meals with their belts fastened around their tunics, ready to travel, not ready to rest, with their sandals on their feet, ready to move, with their staffs in their hand, ready to march. See? And they ate the meal, verse 11 says, in haste, with a sense of urgency, because Pharaoh would rise up in the night and, and, and expel them from Egypt immediately. And so the unleavened bread, see, signifies this urgency, this haste, with which they ate and left Egypt. They weren't supposed to take time, see, to leaven the bread and let it rise before baking it, which is what you would do. Otherwise, the bread tastes kind of lousy, doesn't it? You want nice, fluffy bread that's moist and soft, not a cracker. So you take the time, normally, to let your your dough rise and then bake it. But you don't have time here, God says. Got to get moving. Bake it flat. Bake it fast. Eat with haste, see? In the book of Deuteronomy, which was written years later, just before they got all the way up to the promised land finally, God specified again the details of this feast so that they would remember to eat unleavened bread. 
in commemoration of the haste with which they left Egypt. Deuteronomy 16, verse 3, You shall eat no leavened bread. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, which is the bread of affliction. And that's the second thing that it signifies. For you came out of the land of Egypt in haste. And you shall do this, that all the days of your life you will remember the day when you came out of the land of Egypt. So, unleavened bread indicated haste and the urgency with which the people left Egypt. And it's also called the uh, the bread of affliction there in Deuteronomy. It reminds people generations later as they're eating it, because you wouldn't normally choose to eat this kind of bread, it reminds them of the terrible afflictions that their ancestors suffered in Egypt that necessitated this hasty deliverance on the 14th of Nisan, so long ago. They'd been so afflicted, their exodus was so urgent that they didn't even have time to leaven their bread. They had to eat flat, dry, hard crackers with dinner. And then the the third thing that unleavened bread signifies is, is purity. Purity. Because notice not only were they not to put leaven in their bread, it says in verses 15 and 19 of Exodus 12 that they had to remove all the leaven from their houses entirely. Deuteronomy 16 years later says, not only that, you've got to remove it from the whole territory. Don't even have it in the land during the seven days of unleavened bread. And the reason is because leaven was seen as a symbol of sin. And you know why? Sin is like leaven, right? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. If you've ever made bread, you know you've got a bunch, of, a bunch of dough. Take a little tiny bit of yeast and put it in there. And it will suffuse its way through the whole lump and cause it all to rise. And that's like sin, right? Sin is like leaven. You let a little bit of it in your life. And you think, I'm just going to indulge a a little bit. It's not going to hurt anybody. It's not going to bother anybody. And before you know it, it's, it's, it's changing the shape of your whole life. It's suffusing all of you. It's permeating everything. It's changing you. And so Paul's admonition in 1 Corinthians 5 is get rid of it. Like they got it out of their houses in Egypt, get rid of it. Don't let any of it be in your life. Repent of it. Mortify it. Put it to death. Get it all so that you may be new because, in fact, that's what you are in Christ Jesus. You're a new creation. You're forgiven of sin. You're justified in the righteousness of Christ. You're washed. You're cleansed. You're sanctified. So get rid of the leaven of the sinful habits that remain in you. Be the unleavened bread that you are in Christ Jesus, Paul says. So the unleavened bread of the Passover... And the days of unleavened bread signified the affliction that the people suffered and the haste with which they left the land of affliction and the purity with which they were to go. Not bringing with them, see, all the idolatry and all of the immorality and all the godlessness and worldliness and defilements of the Egyptians but to come into the promised land in purity and holiness and devotion to their God. 
And as they lived on in their history, they were to observe this feast which signified all of those things. God's mercy and deliverance and also your need for purity and to not dabble in the things of this world. Now, think back up here in Exodus 12 still to what God had said to Moses in verse 3. Look at verse 3 again. This is where it gets exciting for me. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, the month of Nisan, on the 10th day of Nisan, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house, a lamb for the household, and then keep it for four days before killing it on the 14th of Nisan, right? Passover meal was eaten in the evening of the 14th of Nisan. The lambs that would be killed and their blood painted on the doorposts and their meat roasted, those lambs were to be chosen, were to be selected, set aside four days before the meal on the 10th day of Nisan. Lock it in your brain here for, for a minute. Jesus ate his Passover meal with his disciples in the evening, the beginning of the day. Remember, sundown to sundown is how Jesus and his disciples marked days. In the beginning of the day, Friday, the 14th of Nisan. That was their Passover meal. Which means that four days before that, on Monday of that week, when the Jewish people were all gathered together in Jerusalem... That was the day that they would be selecting their Passover lambs. They would either bring them to the temple to be inspected and make sure they were spotless and of good quality, or if they didn't have one, or it didn't pass muster, they could buy one from the temple in preparation for the feast four days later. Monday, the 10th of Nisan, the year that Christ died, is when that was happening. Now, hang on with me. We don't have time to fully lay this out this morning, but if you follow the timeline in John's Gospel, in John chapter 12, he tells us that as Jesus was making his way to Jerusalem for the Passover, he gives us some very specific details. He says, when Jesus came to the town of Bethany, which is just over the Mount of Olives from Jerusalem, less than a day's walk, he came there six days before the Passover. Isn't it great that he gives us specific details? There's a reason, and it's awesome. John 12, verse 1, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany. Simple, right? What day is that? Well, Passover is on Friday that year. So Jesus came to Bethany six days prior. That's Saturday, the 8th of Nisan. Then John tells us that while Jesus was staying there in Bethany with Mary and Martha and Lazarus, whom he'd raised from the dead, word got out to the people who were assembled in Jerusalem just over the Mount of Olives that Jesus is he's in Bethany. And so a big crowd of people came the next day. What day is that? Sunday, the 9th of Nisan. A big crowd of people came to see Jesus in Bethany and also to see Lazarus because he'd been raised from the dead. And so the Pharisees got upset and they said, not only are we going to kill Jesus, let's kill Lazarus too because all the people are going after these guys. Sunday, the 9th of Nisan, the crowd of people came to see Jesus and Lazarus. Then John says very clearly, John 12, verse 12, that on the next day, what day is it? 
Monday, the 10th of Nisan, Jesus rides into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. And the people were laying down palm branches as he rode in, fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah 9, the crowd chanting and shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. On the next day, after they'd come to see him in Bethany on Sunday, that happened, that triumphal entry on Monday, the 10th of Nisan. So, I know that we always identify triumphal entry as Palm Sunday, and that's okay. I'm persuaded that it actually happened that year on a Monday because of what John says. It doesn't matter. We can still celebrate Palm Sunday. We can celebrate Palm Monday. If we, it doesn't matter. What matters is this. Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey on the, four, on the 10th day of Nisan. What was going on in Jerusalem on the 10th day of Nisan? The selection of the Passover lambs, right? And make no mistake, that's a big deal in Jerusalem during the days of Passover. It's big business for all the corrupt Sadducees and Jewish officials who made tons of money selling spotless lambs to the people. People would bring a spot. If people were too poor to to even own a lamb, then they'd make them pay full price anyways. And then people would bring a lamb that was a year old and spotless and perfect. And while they were examining it, they'd snap its legs sometimes and go, oh, it's flawed. You got to buy one from us. They were bilking the people. during. They're making tons of money. So it's a huge deal in Jerusalem. People came from everywhere in Israel and made pilgrimage like Jesus did down to Jerusalem to gather together around the temple and celebrate Passover in the days of unleavened bread. Josephus, the historian, says that there were two and a half million people during Jesus' time who came to Jerusalem for Passover. That's, that's almost half the population of the country. And they would gather around all the hillsides all around Jerusalem. Josephus says 256,000 lambs were, were killed in order to feed all of those people at Passover. So, I mean, just try to picture this in your mind's eye, right? Two and a half million people. There's not nearly enough rooms to house them all in Jerusalem, obviously. Jerusalem is a city that in those days was less than a mile wide and two miles long. You can't cram two and a half million people in there. So they're all spilling out over the, over the hillsides. They're all camped out all around. Literally, they're blanketing the landscape. And on that day, Monday, the 10th of Nisan, they'd all be clustering around the temple, pressing in in order to have their lambs inspected or, or purchase lambs. And the Sadducees and the Pharisees, the leaders of, of Israel, they loved this. It was, the spotlight was on them. All the attention was on them. They were in control. But this year, the attention shifted away from them, away from the temple, and on to Jesus as he came riding down the Mount of Olives towards the eastern gate mounted on the back of a donkey. The crowds all turned to him and they all fled out there and they all took palm branches and started laying them as as a pathway for the donkey like you would do for a king. 
And they all started shouting, quoting the words of Psalm 118 that Ian read at the beginning of the service. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord because they understood, they recognized that Jesus was the fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy. He was the promised king who came humbly to bring salvation and to make peace. Only they didn't understand the kind of salvation that he'd come to bring or the depths of the humility by which he would bring it. They, they still thought that the king was going to come and deliver them from the Romans, from earthly and political oppression and enemies and troubles. And so what they failed to understand is that Jesus had come riding in on a donkey. He was fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah 9, 9, He was the great king. He was bringing salvation. But he'd come on the 10th day of Nisan. The day for selecting Passover lambs. So that not only would he present himself as their king, but as their ultimate Passover lamb. I'm the lamb. At the beginning of his ministry, John the Baptist pointed to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Amen? That's John 1.29. And here now, on Monday, the 10th of Nisan, he's come to present himself as the long-awaited king and as the Lamb of God who wouldn't save people from the Romans or any other kind of worldly, earthly oppression, but from sin and from death and from everlasting condemnation by sacrificing himself and pouring out his own blood. Because his blood covers us like the blood covered the doorposts so that the wrath and the judgment of God passes over all who are covered by that blood, all who believe in him. And that's why Paul says what he says in 1 Corinthians 5, cleanse out the old leaven in your hearts that you may be a new lump of bread for really, truly you are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed, he says. And Jesus himself said, he said it four times in John chapter 6, that he is the truest bread He's the bread of God, John 6.33. The the bread that God Himself gives. He's the bread who has come down from heaven to give life to the world, He says. He's the bread of life, John 6.35, John 6.48. And whoever comes to Him will never hunger again. He's the living bread, John 6.51. Anyone who eats of Him will live forever. And he's the bread that gives life to the world. And the bread that he is, is his flesh. It's his body, he says there in John 6. Nailed to the cross as he shed better blood, as the better, truer, most ultimate lamb of God. The better, purer, truest bread to cleanse us of our sins, to forgive us of our trespasses, to satisfy and turn away the wrath of God, to save us, to deliver us in the better and most ultimate and truest exodus. 
and to bring us through the, the wilderness of life in this world where we're pilgrims, where we're sojourners, where this isn't our home. We're passing through on our way to the truest and most ultimate promised land, the eternal kingdom of God, the new heavens and the new earth. And so see, for Paul, who had grown up all his life as a Jewish man, as a Pharisee, with all of this Old Testament knowledge and understanding and heritage and tradition surrounding Passover and the days of unleavened bread, but now he'd encountered Jesus on the Damascus road. And his, his whole life had been transformed and he'd become an apostle of Jesus. He's come now to understand that Jesus is all of this. The promised Messiah, the prophesied King, the, the prophesied Savior, the true Passover, the living bread of life, the true Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's all of that. He's the fulfillment of all of the, the types and shadows of the Old Testament that it was all pointing to. And see, knowing that, for Paul, the, the Passover and the days of unleavened bread held a very, very special significance because they all pointed straight to Christ. That's why he stays in Philippi for seven days. He would have been eager to remain there during Passover in the days of unleavened bread, not to celebrate those Old Testament feasts, but to tell the people during those feasts where, where these things are most palpably ingrained in their minds and experiences as they're eating the lamb and the leavened bread, that Jesus is the lamb. That Jesus is the bread. That Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. And to spend that week proclaiming Jesus in an opportunity and in a way that was, that was unique. That's why he stayed in Philippi. And for us, who have been covered by Jesus' blood and saved from the wrath of God and brought out of the bondage to, to sin and death, as we're making our way through the wilderness towards the eternal promised land, the, the days of unleavened bread as they used to celebrate them, I and as Jewish people still do, that's not a festival that we observe like the Jews because we have the fulfillment. Jesus is our Passover. And everything that all of it signified needs to define our lives now as we walk by faith in Him towards the eternal kingdom of heaven. The days of unleavened bread signified oppression and affliction for the Israelites to Pharaoh and in Egypt, but ultimately for all mankind, the oppression of sin and death. And the days of unleavened bread signified deliverance, exodus, ultimately not just from the cruel taskmasters of Egypt, but from sin itself, from death itself, from the cruelty of the devil. That's what we celebrate every Lord's Day, every single day that we have been set free. The days of unleavened bread signified haste in leaving Egypt. The people weren't just supposed to be lounging around and dilly-dallying and lingering in Egypt. you got to get moving towards the promised land. And we need to experience and 
live according to the same sort of sense of urgency in our lives. We can't be dabbling around in this world and fooling around with the things of this world and becoming entangled with the affairs of this world. The days are evil and we've got to redeem the time, Paul says. We can't be too friendly with the godless ways of this world or we get caught up in the, in the destruction that will come when the wrath of God is revealed. Get moving and call people to come with you. And the days of unleavened bread signified purity. No leaven in the unleavened bread. Just as they were to pursue purity and, and holiness as they left Egypt, we have to remain unstained by this world. Unleavened in our lives because Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed for us. We're sojourning here. We're pilgrims here through this world that's not our home. We're longing, Hebrews says in chapter 11 and verse 6, for the better country. Keep your eyes locked on the better country. This one's falling apart. Just turn on any channel on your TV. Keep your eyes fixed on the things that are above where Jesus Christ sits at God's right hand. Focus on the things that are eternal because the things that are temporal are passing away, but those things last forever. Fill your heart with the treasures of heaven and not the treasures of this world and run the race with endurance that you might finish well. Amen? Let's pray together because we're going to come now to the Lord's table where we celebrate what Jesus Himself ordained for us on the night of Passover, this supper where the bread signifies His body, the cup signifies His blood poured out, because He's the true living bread. He's the true Passover lamb. And He's given us everlasting life and the promise of everlasting kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we are sojourners in this world. We are pilgrims making our way to the better country. We have been delivered by our Passover lamb from the wrath of God that is to come. We have been given life. We have been given hope. We have been given peace. And so, Father, we pray, keep us fixed on the promised land. Help us by your grace to be holy and pure in our lives. Help us to mortify the sin that remains in us, to put to death the deeds of the flesh, to remove all of the leaven, and to keep pursuing You and running the race with endurance, to not get entangled by the sin which so easily besets us or the things of this world. For friendship with the world is enmity with God. And so, Father, as we come to You, we pray, give us the amazing grace by which we have been saved and let it fuel in us continual growth and striving and holiness and purity as we make our way towards that better kingdom. Father, we love you, and we thank you, and we give you praise for all that you are and all that you have done through Jesus Christ, our Passover lamb. And in his name we pray and say, Amen. Amen.